You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 9. Eight Dresses. From the Journal of Abigail Gray, District of Columbia, April 11th, 1883. Dress fitting had ranked among my least favorite activities since pitching up in Washington. Not a lot of fellas will know this, but those big floofy numbers y'all seem so keen on as wearing often come with a cage attached. An enormous upturned bowl of stiffened horsehair called crinoline makes a lady's lower half into a big old bell shape for you to enjoy. A couple of decades ago, it would have been constructed of steel. Imagine dragging yourself around with a dozen metal hoops fastened to your ass, and you'll understand better why men don't. You can't run, you can barely walk without tripping over, and Lord help you if you need the bathroom. There's no time to be taken off underwear. That's why we sport either open crotch bloomers or nothing at all. Worse still, thousands of girls straight up combusted on account of their capacious dresses draping too close to open flames. I'll tell you this, if top hats occasionally made a man go on fire, you can bet there'd be a sudden craze for bowlers. So Harry, Annie, and I sat slumped on a wide bench covered in expensive leather in one of the finest and indeed one of the only dressmakers in the city, while truth went on and on for what might have been two years about the importance of our appearance at this ball. We were never allowed to forget that the most powerful men in the nation would be in attendance, nearly all of whom could be encouraged to lend their aid and support in a generous fashion when it came time to budget in the National Intelligence Agency. We may be operating on military credit, but it ain't an infinite supply. We'll still need greasing. It was delightful to be considered the grease in this scenario. Annie was taken out back by Truth and Sarah and returned in a star-spangled nightmare. So, uh, what do you think? I think you look like Uncle Sam's wife, Aunt Samantha. This is our Columbia. She's the female embodiment of America. She's an Independence Day festival with a wig on it. (sighs) Harry, seems appropriate clothing for a ball. Especially one where everybody's supposed to be thinking about America. I think you look real pretty. That's really nice of you, Sparks. Mom, lose the poofy sleeves. Oh, thank you. (laughs) After that, it was Harry's turn. She was wheeled out in a garish peach number and seemed to be having trouble stepping around. Her eyes kept rolling as she checked about herself, reaching out to grab the candle fitting on the wall to hold steady. I sprang up and snatched the lit candle away, blowing it out sharply. <sighs> mm, I don't have to do oh, my. Harry, I don't think I've seen you look like a lady before. Truth used to dress me up. Yes, but you were so much younger. Now you seem almost regal. I don't feel it. Are you comfortable? Not even a little bit. It doesn't matter. You look spectacular. Walk over there and turn for us. Uh, Harry did as she was told, pacing over as though to pick up a hammer from the nearby shelf. This dress doesn't make any sense. Think of the practicalities involved in accentuating your figure, your neck. I'm so glad we went with bare shoulders. It's not about your clothing helping you move, it's about how you are able to move with elegance despite its restrictions. You you think the men will like this? 
I gotta admit, you do look different. Good different? Different enough to fit in at this dance, I guess. This honest assessment made her shoulders slump. Uh, well, I, I guess that's good. These shoes are so wrong. Can we get her flats? Nobody will see her feet anyway. She can't wear her work boots. People will hear her clomping up the stairs. Just slippers, then. Harry stood, looking down at her feet while they fussed over her. In all actuality, she did look very pretty to me right then. I most likely felt sorry for her getting poked and prodded by people trying to make her into something that would please them. Or the fact that right here she looked lonely and isolated. And I had the urge to get up and hug her. Either way, I regret now that I didn't tell her so. Because she clearly needed it. Okay, slippers. Yes. No, actually, sandals. I'll find something which won't make too much noise, but also with a little grip so it won't send her tumbling into the punch bowl. My turn now. I wasn't going to wear my work boots. When Sarah emerged from the dressing room, it was in a beautiful blue and lilac gown that even I had to admit looked just right on her. It was less wide than Harry's, but had a longer train at the back and a crinolette and ass cage, I guess, which accentuated that behind of hers. I noted that she walked with upright assurance and had donned a pair of long black silk gloves. Truth came next, with a mustard yellow thing, which, as you might imagine, suited her pretty well. I'd been saved until last, presumably because of my digging in my heels every inch of the way. Since everyone else was in fancy dress, I may as well match the occasion. Ten minutes later, I stood before them in what I can only describe as a pink... cake. I looked down at myself, and back at them. It's... enchanting. You have got to be fucking kidding me. It might be a little unsuited to her red hair. It's unsuited to my everything. Get me unsuited now. What else you got? Well, there's the orange one. The orange one wasn't much better. And it was so tight I could barely breathe. It's still uh, a little loud. It'd be the only thing about me that was loud. We're limited by your figure here, Gray. You're taller than Abe Lincoln. I'll be dead or an Abe Lincoln if you don't get me out of this torture device in half a minute. Fine. Get the green one out. The green one is for a woman a foot shorter than Abigail. Then we'll get her an extra long petticoat. Uh, make it white. Nobody will know the difference. Once we get that décolletage on display, they won't look at her feet. At the mention of whatever part of me that was, I obstinately ripped open the orange corset, taking a deep breath as I did so. <sighs> oh, what the hell did you just do? I let the girls out. That dress costs a week's worth of my wages. Well, now it's a skirt. Give me the green one. We'll take this one out of your pay. Truth snarled, as the lady in charge of the shop rushed to retrieve the second backup dress. That's fine and dandy. I reckon my salary will be pretty swanky once I save the whole goddamn world. I'll buy this dress shop and burn it to the ground. Oh. Annie gasped in horror. But the line had been intended to jab hard at truth, and it had worked. She hissed as politely as she could through clenched teeth as she handed me this rather nice, elegant number. Try... <clears throat> Please try the green one. It fitted well enough, once we got the extra petticoat on. 
but Truth spent the whole period I was out there being adjusted glaring at me, even when she was saying nice things. Annie looked wary and almost ashamed of me, her gaze cast down as she fidgeted with the stars on her shawl. I held my head up stubbornly, but there was a little piece of me that realized I'd ruined playtime. From the Journal of Annie Oakley, District of Columbia, April 12, 1883. The next day, Frank was leading me along the upper landing of our house, and my hands were over my eyes. We were still reeling from Thomas's new orders and trying to resituate ourselves in our own minds as both protectors and possible executioners to our friends. I kept approaching the problem from different angles. I have killed for the RSA government for years now. If the people I had to take out of the equation presented a threat to America with their actions, then, in all practicality, I had no choice but to do the right thing. What was weighing on me, piling on the pressure every subsequent time I consider this, was that there were manners of handling them that would keep things sweet, and there were things I could do that would sour the whole affair. The notion was like an icy set of fingers creeping slowly up my back. The idea of beginning a chain of events that would culminate with me ending Abigail's life simply by not getting enough sleep or food or falling sick or disagreeing with her or saying the wrong thing. I would almost rather have told her what the deal was, laid the dreadful import of our actions down for her to appraise, like an adult. But I knew that against all irony, doing this would mean she would never trust me. That might get both of us, all of us, killed. And on top of all that, I was antsy, because the ball was two evenings from now, and my hair still smelled of horse. Despite going through the same internal gauntlet that I was, my husband had been patient and gentle about my obviously jangled nerves. Okay, keep your eyes shut. <laughs> I swear, I can't see a thing. I'll just get the door for you here and step on through. All right. Now open up. Oh, there, where my Columbia getup had stood earlier upon its mannequin, was a different dress entirely. My jaw lowered as I stepped forward. I recognized immediately the deep, rich red, delicate, silk sleeveless number with the bustle at the rear that I had spotted and fallen in love with on my first day back in Washington after the Manticore incident. On an adjacent table was a brand new dark brown leather gun belt with holsters on either side. Next to it, was a collection of navy and white silk ribbons and a brand new sewing kit. My hands were now over my mouth as I gazed first at the dress and then at my husband. He smiled broadly and pulled a velvet box from the chest of drawers. Since Truth never asked if you were much of a seamstress, 
She missed the opportunity to ask whether you'd like to assemble the prettiest American flag of a dress around yourself. It was true. If there was one thing I could do almost as well as sending bullets into their intended targets, it was sewing. This man had watched me craft my military costume for weeks on end, the fire of determination in my eye. He knew the potent and lasting sensation of reward I got out of completing it. I, I, what's Truth gonna say? We, we don't have time to clear this with her. Already taken care of. I ran the setup by her two days ago. Even with the gun belt? That was my idea. I knew you needed a new one, and this way we get to position you for what you are on the team, too. Don't worry, I had it adjusted so it'll be comfortable and won't slip down while we're dancing. <laughs> Butler, I, I don't know what to say. You didn't seem happy with what she'd put together for you. I wasn't, but I was just so excited about this, this teeny little opportunity to, to be a girl. You know? Not at all like the fierce young lady I met who didn't want to be thought of as a lady. He smiled lovingly. There's just not that many chances these days. I looked down at the box. What's that? Oh, just something to finish this one off. He flipped the lid of the velvet case, and a tiny flash caught my eye. Inside was a necklace with a silver chain and what looked like an elegantly sculpted sheriff's badge. For my little shooting star. It's, it's beautiful. This whole thing is... <laughs> <laughs> From the Journal of Sarah Arlington, District of Columbia, April 14th, 1883. In the last few minutes before we left for the ball, Thomas stepped into the bedroom behind me as I finished applying a little rouge to my cheeks. I regarded him in the mirror amid the glow of the oil lamps, and was happy to see a smile cross his face as he met my gaze. I curled a ringlet in my hair and kept my eye on him as he walked over to stand behind me. You know, I may not act like it very often, and it feels reductive to say these words in the presence of such beauty and grace. But I am one of the luckiest bastards who ever lived. Yes, you are. It had been a challenging fortnight. The day after the gathering in the war room and the formation of Team Steam, Thomas had reneged on his decision to let Harry go with them. He had cited the positioning of Major Butler as her co-pilot to be sound enough reasoning for further training in order to send our daughter's imparted experience without having to send the girl herself. Truth, Harry and I fought him every step of the way. Our stance was that she was no longer a girl and by his own words had shown remarkable steel and resourcefulness as a key player in the Battle of Washington. The core of our argument was that this initial decision he had made was his gut instinct, as well as his logical assessments. It was his paternal protectiveness kicking in now, and this had to be overcome, for the good of the many. After days of dispute, 
He had accepted the requirements upon him, and once again, Harry was on her way. I need one favor from you tonight, he continued, that fleeting window of relaxation and contentment melting back into seriousness. Name it. At this, he crossed to the wardrobe, retrieved my bulletproof jacket, and laid it gently upon the bed. Just to be safe. I nodded, resolutely, and he left the room, satisfied. I glanced in the mirror at the jacket, looked down at the long black gloves I'd been so yearning to show off, and then back up at myself. This went way beyond the dress and the slight discomfort of wearing a jacket the whole way through a lengthy event of schmoozing and being delightful to senators, industrialists, and generals. Thomas was asking me here to match him on his mistrust of humanity. Every minute of the day, when he was outside, his red armor was on. Every minute that went by, he declared to the world, silently, I truly believe that you will attempt to kill me. My mind went to the wardrobe. It was a roomy and grand space, and held many outfits not all of which went with this jacket of mine. I delved further back, mentally, to the end of the rail, deep inside. Harry had requested three identical coats for the construction. One had been made into this protective body shield. One had been mined for parts and reinforcements, but the other was ultimately never needed, and she returned it to me intact. Thomas was not aware of this, and I hadn't told him, and I knew why as well. But this was the first time I had really turned over the thought in my mind, accepted some of its key elements. I want to trust people. I want to step outside without armor. The citizens of Washington would not know either way, of course, as it is not common knowledge that we wear these, and the coats appear to be identical. But I would know, and that would make all the difference to me in the way I approach humanity, and the idea of unity. I do not believe that we can make this dream real if we spend our lives preoccupied by fear of one another. That has been what has kept us apart for so long. Three possibilities now lay before me. I fiddled with my perfumes as I considered this. One... I could call Thomas back in here, lay out my philosophy and strong moral standpoint on this matter. We could have a blazing row, be late for the party, spend the whole night frosty with one another, and maybe take several more weeks to reach any kind of agreement. A time period that will completely overlap the launch of Steamheart and leave both director and deputy director emotionally compromised. Two, I can swallow this ideal for tonight, slip on the protective shell, sigh over my now all-but-invisible long gloves, and go with Thomas to the party, where I will keep my mind on the task at hand and hold on to this standpoint to engage at a later date, when it won't put quite so much on the line. 3. And thinking of this one gives me a tiny thrill. I could put on a soft jacket, and step out into the Washington night, trusting those we lead and work alongside to be good people. 
I can walk without the cloud of fear that Thomas does, hanging over me. And later, I can explain to him why I chose to do this, and why I will often do the same in the future. It needn't be always. If we are approaching a dangerous place, of course I will wear protection. But that is just it. I do not want to think that every square inch of the world outside these walls is the same measure of dangerous. <sighs> I scowl at myself, raise to my feet, spritz a little scent on my neck, and pull on the armored jacket. Tonight is not the night, and I knew this before I started deliberating with myself. But I have decided that someday soon, I am going to step out there without it. Thomas can go on believing the world is filled with hatred and fear. But that will not be me. have been listening to episode 9 of Steamheart, Eight Dresses, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Annie Oakley and Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Sarah Arlington, performed by Maureen Foley. Truth Arlington, performed by Theo Lee. Thomas W. Arlington, performed by Alexander Shaw. Where the West Begins, composed by Ferenc Hegedus of Shockwave Sound. Annie Oakley Sonata, composed and performed by Gilhaim Steinberg. Mr. Exposition, Mysterio March, Night on the Docks, Immersed and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Joseph Gluck, Sean Doran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And most of our iTunes reviews in America and all of them in the UK just disappeared overnight. Somebody pulled a lever and nearly everything nice that's ever been said about this show on Apple's platform just winked out of existence like it was never there. So whether you wrote a review originally or have not yet done so, and even if you have nothing to say but can leave us a star rating, if you love the New Century Multiverse, that is something you can most definitely do. As a child, Truth Arlington would fantasize that one day she would grow up to be Queen of America. <laughs>